Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's episode is called The Cost of Pascal's Wager. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode today. In last week's episode, episode 101, that I called, What If the LDS Church is True? I received a number of comments. And today, I want to respond to some of them as a jumping off place to discuss Moroni's promise is a hasty generalization and how the LDS Church uses Moroni's promise to encourage the the members of the church to come to the conclusions that the church wants them to. To start this off, I'll give a brief recap of what I discussed last week. Then I want to read some of the comments that I received on that episode and use it as a jumping off point to discuss Moroni's promise. To start things off, the slippery slope fallacy is a logical fallacy where someone says, if A happens, or if A is true, or if you know we allow A to happen, then eventually Z will happen too. So if A, then therefore Z. The, the problem with this, this fallacy is that the arguer um, uses something that they feel they can prove, like a linchpin, like you know, if we can use Moroni's promise to verify that the Book of Mormon is true, then all of these other things about the church must also be true. So last week we were discussing Pascal's Wager. Again, I didn't go too deep into it, but Pascal's Wager is basically, since we can't know whether or not God exists or does not exist, we're better off trying to believe because it sets us up for the most potential success and the the best possible outcome. And I described that as being a slippery slope because there's there's a lot of assumptions made to get from God exists to this outcome of an eternal salvation. Each one of those is something that would need to be proven on its own merit. And that doesn't even begin to complicate the issue by introducing other religions, other sects of these other religions. And so presenting it as a black and white binary doesn't accurately portray how complicated this issue really is. So I discussed that. And I related that to the question that many of us that have left the church are faced with of what if the LDS church is true? I said that this exact criticism of Pascal's wager applies directly to the statement of what if the LDS church is true? There are too many variables within that statement for it to be a simple binary. So that's the premise. That's what we talked about last week on episode 101. Go back and listen to it. I had fun making that one. Today, I'm going to read some of the comments. I got um, (laughs) one of the markers that I use to try and see if I'm hitting that niche that I'm really aiming at is if I get um, a frustrated response from both believers and (laughs) non-believers. That's kind of my goal. And I did. I got that in this last one. And I, I want to read 
a comment that I received from a non-believer that I think you might get a kick out of. Ted said, I truly like Ramiumptum Ruminations, but this episode doesn't work. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Joseph Smith was an illegal treasure digger, a child molester, created and took money with an illegal bank, and was a terrorist by burning down a legal printing press. If God allowed a person like this, and I don't mean a flawed person, I mean a horrible person, to exist as a prophet, that is not a God I want to be associated with. The Book of Mormon and the LDS Church is not only not true, it's demonstrably false. And if members can't figure that out, shame on them. We can't prove that there is a God. However, we can prove that Joseph Smith was not a great person. Took some liberties to edit that uh, last statement. <laughs> so I hope you'll, uh, you'll forgive me for that one, Ted. My response to him was just a couple sentences. I said, you may not be the target audience for this one. I'm trying to help a newly doubting person work through this question. That was my response. I, I didn't know where Ted was coming from. I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to be belittle his stance or um, come at him with any sort of ire or frustration. Many of us that leave the church, we go through a wide range of emotions, and everything Ted is feeling is 100% valid. So I just wanted to, as concisely as possible, state, here's where I'm coming from. You were not the target audience. And then Ted came back, and I'm truly honored that you responded. And you do a great job. This is my side note. I think this shows that he's a critical thinking and self-reflecting person. He says, I came off as angry, and I guess I am. I put my time and money into a business that masquerades as a church and feel like a fool for doing it. I need to breathe like you and John DeLand do. Keep up the great work. Good on you, Ted. It's 100% okay to be frustrated and mad and angry and feel the full range of your emotions. The tone I set for my podcast is intentional. So I know it's going to frustrate some people, and I'm sorry. So the next comment I want to read is, is from a listener named Cindy. She and I might have been on the same wavelength, you know, anticipating exactly where I'm going with this conversation, but she made a comment about the subject that I wanted to discuss today. So Cindy says, the Mormon version of truth has too many slippery slopes. God for me does exist. I just don't believe in the LDS version. It's very complex, as you eloquently stated. People of this faith don't seem to go beyond any complexities of yes or no at all. In my experience, you're either all in or all out mentally. I think it's part of the indoctrination that holds or binds people shrouded in fear. This immediately causes shame. It's insidious to me that merely asking any questions is quickly seen as, as a destructive measure of lacking faith. Intelligence always allows questions. That's what the glory of God is supposedly is. Yet, if I, asked, if I ever asked anything I didn't understand, I was often seen as a hostile or aggressive. My belief in God, any questions are welcomed and answered honestly to fulfill the measure of all creation. That, for me, is pure love. That that few experience within the Mormon church. Good for you. I'm happy that you have landed in a space outside of the LDS faith and still believing in God. It's, it's refreshing to hear someone landing in a different space than I did. So you, you know, have this experience within the LDS faith, you deconstruct your faith, and you come out the other side still believing in God. That, didn't, that wasn't the case for me, but it was the case for you. And good for you, Cindy, on that. Now again, I think you and I were on the same wavelength, that there are way too many slippery slopes within the LDS church. 
And today specifically, I want to talk about Moroni's promise and how Moroni's promise is a slippery slope. But before we get there, I have one more comment to read. This is from a guy named Dave, and he is a believer, and he really did not like my episode. So I'm going to jump into this. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to read his comment, and I'll respond to some of the elements. And uh, then I'll use this as a jumping off point to talk about of how Moroni's promise is a hasty generalization. So Dave says, I listened to your episode and have some comments. First, you seem to obfuscate around the topic of your episode. Your episode is, what if the LDS church is true, not what if God exists? When it comes to the afterlife, there are very few variables to the LDS church doctrine on the afterlife. It is eternal damnation in the two lower kingdoms and eternal progression in the highest kingdom. Those are your two options. If I believed my two options were existence ends at death and or eternal damnation, I would obfuscate the topic as well. The answer is a no-brainer. He keeps going, but I'm going to pause there and uh, respond to this. So I think um, for me, there's two logical fallacies that Dave is presenting here, both the Tukwokwe fallacy and the straw man. The straw man is probably one that more people are familiar with than the Tukwokwe one. Basically, the Tukwokwe fallacy is instead of actually addressing any of the criticisms, this person jumps to jumps immediately to criticizing the presenter. So, um, and and not necessarily like criticizing as ad hominem, but for example, let's say, let's say, and it happens, I presented the, I presented my argument really poorly. Let's say I just did a really bad job of presenting it instead of addressing the claims that I was making in the episode. The two quote fallacy. Um, is avoiding engaging with the criticism and then turning it back on the back on the um, arguer and then making some sort of criticism or claim against the arguer not necessarily an ad hominem against them but um, it could be like this person said instead of engaging with what i said he's he says that the episode title was this but what you were really talking about was that so in this he wasn't really talking about any of the points that i made now, the next part, he says, this is where I would say it would be a straw man because he didn't accurately explain my position. And then he said that my take on it was a no brainer because of this straw man version of my argument that he made. This last sentence that he says, if I believed my two options were existence ends at death or eternal damnation, I would obfuscate the topic as well. The answer is a no brainer. So here he, he's, he's combining both the Tukokwe and then the straw man. So he's not really addressing the criticism that I had with this, with Pascal's wager. And then he's presenting a straw man of what I said and saying that, of course, you would come to that conclusion. It's a no brainer. Now, I don't, I'm not sure if Dave is going to listen or ever hear this or even respond to it. But um, I want to point out that I never said where I land on any of on Pascal's wager or where I would put myself. And so maybe I'll say that right here. I don't think I would wager on anything. For me, I'm just going to live a good life, be a good person, be kind to my neighbor and try and love everyone around me because there are too many unknowns for me to be confident in any decision about deity and religion. Saying that, that doesn't even begin to discuss my thoughts on the afterlife 
and what happens to us after we die. I do have thoughts on that. I've said them once or twice in the podcast. So again, he's making assumptions about who I am, what I believe, where I'm coming to the table without really understanding. So that's okay. I won't put that expectation on Dave to have listened to every single episode that I've put out and, and fully understand where I'm coming from and, and what I believe on every single subject. So that's okay. I'm, that, that's fine. He doesn't need to know that. Saying that I was obfuscating the topic, I don't think accurately portrays what I was trying to express. So perhaps I wasn't as descriptive and eloquent as Cindy was saying. Maybe I wasn't quite clear enough. I'll restate what I was trying to express in the previous episode right here. The question, what if the LDS church is true, for me is a slippery slope fallacy. So many variables about points of doctrine and about each belief, each tenet of the religion, you know, you could say each of the articles of faith, each one of them should be examined on its own merit and determined whether it's true or false for each one. So to say that, what if it's true? It's a generalization. It, it combines way too many ideas into one single thought, and that doesn't accurately portray how complex each one of those individual ideas really is. So saying, what if the LDS church is true? is a slippery slope fallacy because there are too many ideas presented within it. What if it's true? Okay, if it's true, then this, then that, then this, then that, and then all the way down to eternal progression or eternal damnation. That's the slippery slope. That's jumping from A, what if it's true? What if the Book of Mormon were true? What if Joseph Smith were a prophet? A, jumping all the way to, you know, what if the plan of salvation is really what happens after we die and the degrees of glory and the kingdoms of heaven and eternal polygamy that's the slippery slope what if it's true all the way to eternal damnation the argument i was making was each one of those things needs to be examined on its own and the validity of each claim should be taken as a separate claim and understood in its own space. So hopefully that clears it up a little bit better. The last sentence that he says in this first paragraph is a little bit of a dig at me. And he says, those are your two options referring to um, eternal damnation. If I believe my two options were existence ends at death or eternal damnation, I would obfuscate the topic as well. The answer is a no-brainer. It sounds like, if I understand you correctly, you think that I am selecting the bottom two options because my choices are existence ending or eternal damnation. I I don't feel like I'm obfuscating the topic like you say that I am. Presenting this Pascal's wager or even this, you know, this uh, Moroni's promise wager on the validity of the LDS church doesn't work for me because the variables that you're placing on this wager are not verifiable. If you could prove to me that the plan of salvation is true, then I would consider this wager in the, in the terms that you're presenting it. The premise of Pascal's wager is these things aren't verifiable, but we cannot reason whether God exists or not. By extension, we can't reason whether eternal damnation or eternal salvation exist or not. So we can't reason that those things exist. But the way you're presenting this 
is as if they are facts. That it is a given that the that this is the way the afterlife functions. But the premise of the wager acknowledges that we cannot prove these things. You're coming to this to this discussion fundamentally misunderstanding what the wager is. There is an acknowledgement that faith is a realm apart from reason. And that doesn't mean that you can't have faith and that you can't live your life based on your faith. But when trying to look at a subject like this rationally, a discussion of faith isn't part of the conversation. Now, um, Dave addressed some of the uh, criticisms I had against the church, against polygamy and the racial ban of the priesthood. Um, And then then specifically uh, the statement I made about the racist scriptures in the Book of Mormon. He listed a bunch of scriptures. Um, I might actually do an episode about that down the road because I think it would be interesting. I think there's, there's an important distinction between what he was citing was um, Old Testament passages. He was citing Old Testament passages and to show that race was brought up in the Old Testament. But there's, there's an important distinction between the way skin was presented in the Old Testament and the way it's talked about and treated in the Book of Mormon. Maybe I'll do an episode about that down the road. So Dave, you know, if you're listening out there, I honestly don't have hard feelings against you. I'm glad that you engaged. I'm glad that you listened. So thank you. And I do want to talk about and address those, but it's not the subject for today. There's a lot more that I could say on this subject. I could keep, you know, digging into um, some of my criticisms of the church. What I want to leave this off on, what if the LDS church is true? You know, I'm going to ignore my problems with polygamy. I'm going to ignore my problems with the racial ban and, and the racist scriptures, the racist um, comments in the scriptures. I'm going to ignore my problems with the, with the way the LGBTQ plus community is treated. So all of that on the side. Outside of those things, one of my biggest problems, if the LDS church is true, then God constantly changes his mind. If every prophet speaks the word of God, if every scripture, both Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, if it's all true, then God is always changing his mind and contradicting himself. And that doesn't give me a lot of confidence to be a believer in him. I have been talking and responding to these comments for a lot longer than I anticipated. So I think I'm actually going to wrap this episode. And next week, I'm going to discuss Moroni's promise as a hasty generalization. And so instead of switching gears at this point, which is near where I uh, will typically try to wrap up the episode, I'm going to read one more comment and then I'll I'll finish this this discussion. A, uh, <laughs> a commenter on YouTube with the name All Those Opposed, which great, great screen name, by the way. Amazing. She says, I wish my ramblings came out as clearly as yours. I remember it like it was yesterday, the time a grown woman asked me the question, what if the church isn't true? I didn't skip a beat in my response. My young, precocious mind had wrestled such things as I stared out the window, retreating into my mind for escape on long, chaotic family Sunday afternoon drives up the canyons of Utah. It's such a deflating experience to find that your deep original thoughts have actually been thought before, and some even coined by coined as philosophical arguments, lol. Needless to say, Pascal's wager was the answer I gave her, and I did so with absolute confidence that I had nothing to lose. This is how my ramblings came out. My response to her, <laughs> I said, I'll let you in on a little secret. 
I pause the recordings while I gather my thoughts. So I do pause, let myself think, and make sure that what I'm trying to say is what I want to say. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, I'm really bad at coming up with um, coming up with things to say on the spot. I am not a quick, an on my feet, quick thinker. It takes me a minute. I have to. I have to slow down and I have to process information before I can word them the way that I want to word them. This commenter brings up an interesting, an interesting concept. When Pascal's wager is framed in such a way that a believer has nothing to lose, I think that may work for general Christianity. But the idea from Pascal's wager that you don't really lose very much in this life if you're a believer doesn't work in a high demand fundamentalist religion. There is a very real cost to being a believer. There is a cost to the LGBTQ plus members of the church being withheld from full blessings. There was a cost uh, with the racial ban that has now been lifted, but there are still some remnants of racist ideologies within the scriptures. There's a cost to the practice of polygamy. There's, there are so many elements within a high-demand fundamentalist religion that really do impose a cost upon the members of the church. So this part of the wager saying that there really isn't anything to lose if you believe in it and it doesn't end up being true, that, that part of the wager doesn't work for me. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. If this is content that you enjoy, if this podcast is something that brings value to your life, please consider becoming a monthly recurring donor. Go to the ramiemptumruminations.org website, donate a dollar, two dollars, you know, whatever you can. Uh, if, that's, if that's not something you're financially able to do, you could uh, share it with a friend. You could like the episodes, comment on them, engage with the content, and that'll help spread it to a wider audience. So wherever you find yourself out there, getting your spot all picked out on the parade that's going through the boardwalk, sitting down with the family to participate in the community event, I hope that you have an excellent day. Thank you.